Hello, this is Kat. And this is Phoebe. Welcome to the first feminine chaos of the year 1992. No, wait, what year is it? <laughs> it's. I think it's been 2020 for the past 15 years. Okay, that'll work. That'll work. Well, it's definitely 2020. Um, it, it's real, real sort of what what month would we say like April 2020 times in some locations? Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. But we're here. We're. I was about to say we're queer, but are we? Because um, are you wearing a mask right now? Are you wearing one right now? Yes, but not on the part of my body that you might expect. <laughs> I was about to. Say, I was about to ask you on which part of your body. Um, I guess we're, as usual, um, on the same page here at Feminine Chaos. Um, so libs of TikTok, admittedly not something that I follow, made its way into my uh, Twitter timeline via something where a person is ranting liberally, <laughs> liberally, liberally sprinkling their observations about how you can be it, it's sort of it's all over the place a little bit, but it's that basically it's that queerness is radical politics. You can be gay without being queer and gay is used in this kind of like derogatory, like if you're gay, you're obviously some sort of horrible, like Nazi conservative <laughs> as versus queer in which you're a good person. I will no longer call a person queer if I don't see them participating in queer politic. You're gay, sure, you're gay. That is not the same as queer. If you haven't put a mask on in a week, not queer. You're just not queer, you're not. And the example given, but the reason that this jumped out at me apart from the whole sort of, can you be queer without being any sort of sexual or gender minority? Well, that's its own question. But what jumped out at me was really this issue of, that if you haven't worn a mask, I think in the last week, you're not queer. It, what I noticed about it was it just seemed to really line up with something that I have noticed in articles, some of which we will be discussing, also in life, some of which I will be not discussing because I don't want to like, you know, hold forth about actual people too, too much. But um, yeah, where where there's some sort of connection between, dare I say, the culture wars and this small but vocal community of people who really, really, really think the pandemic both does go on forever or and sort of should go on forever, if that makes sense. Or not the pandemic, but rather the the pandemic the response. response. Yeah, the, pandemic the, res response. the restrictions that we should have permanently... And we, and we still can. It's not too late to permanently alter a society in favor of a, a kind of a pandemic norm. I was very interested in the idea that, you know, like she says masking, and I, I do assume that it's like COVID masking. It's like the surgical mask. Um, although I suppose, you know, depending on the kind of mask you're wearing, if it's like one of those gimp hoods with the ball gag built in, <laughs> that, you know, would indeed convey a certain, a certain um, I don't know, queerness, a certain edginess, a certain position in the, the radical end of the But would it? What what if it's a man and a woman doing this? Cis man, cis woman. Hmm? Yeah, I mean, it just it seems like there is something where uh, things line up that wouldn't obviously do so. 
And yeah, I, I guess I wonder, so the people who want the pandemic response to go on forever, are they similarly concerned with the preservation of life in all contexts? And I don't even mean like abortion debate, clearly that would be a different topic, but like, are they concerned about flu? Are they concerned about car crashes? Are they concerned about, you know, natural disaster? I don't know. Like, are, are they global warming, whatever it is, like, are they equally concerned about all of these things? Or are they disproportionately concerned specifically about COVID? Well, I think that what they're disproportionately concerned about is um, anything, any issue where it appears that, that one of the potential solutions is to kind of scold other people into compliance as hard and as sanctimoniously as humanly possible. And I, you know, admittedly, like that's not a very charitable reading, but it is based on kind of a survey of the existing landscape when it comes to this stuff. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by the uh, the libs of TikTok video of this. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's not libs of TikTok's video. They just found it and repost it because that's right. what they do. Um, but the whole demeanor of it, the the sort of the tone of voice of this person is so um, reminiscent of this very like kind of finger waggy school marmy like. 20 years ago, this is the person who would have been like, keep your legs closed, you disgusting slut. <laughs> what are you trying to do? Um, and so it's just been kind of transmuted into this other thing. But like the question is, how how queer is that? How radical is that? Ooh, interesting. So to me, this actually brings to mind something more recent, um, which is the kind of how could you say that you did an actual violence? type approach. And I think that sometimes I see this as kind of like, like you're actually the sort of you're actually murdering people if you, you know, say the wrong thing or whatever, follow the wrong person on social media. Um, you know, that I think with COVID, I think you have then this sort of concrete case where there is this potentially deadly disease out there. That's not, you know, in people's head that, that that's true. But I think that there's this sort of, there's something sort of empowering for a certain sort of person about the ability to sort of point to something concrete and say, look, all these people who disagree with me are actual murderers, you know, and it's hard to, I don't know, it, it's hard to give that up, even when it w there's this kind of, shouldn't, surely there would be some kind of balance. And I think for most people there is between, you know, it's unpleasant slash dangerous, depending to get covid but also you can't have the whole of society locked down forever plus that doesn't even seem to work so yes. maybe people should just in fact go about their lives because you only have the one and if you spend it all in your house and you'll probably have covid anyway um yeah i mean i guess i should I'll, I'll do some extremely personal sharing now you ready i'm so ready so i've been like a little cautious I'm not going to say extremely like I have, you know, socialized indoors and so forth, but um, I wear a mask usually on the subway and so forth, but I have, and, and I've had four uh, vaccines against COVID. I'm the only one in my household who has had COVID definitively like tested positive for it twice. And over the break, I also had flu. I've had like everything and it just, it's just dispiriting, you know, I'm not gonna claim I did everything right, because obviously, no, but like, I also, 
there's just like stuff out there. You know what I mean? Like if you have small children, you're going to get stuff. If you leave the house, you're going to get stuff. If somebody you live with leaves the house, you're going to get stuff. If you require food, (laughs) you know, like there, there's just something about this vision of like this gentler society where nobody ever catches anything that's frustrating as is this kind of, I guess this is maybe a, a cousin of the forever COVID people, but like the, um, this idea that you should be really figuring out where you got it and who you got it from and that there was the bad actor right behind every infection was like, who, who was the person? Who did you get it from? Who did it? Who did that wrong thing? And it can never have been you. It's like, who do you point the finger at? Right, right. right. Oh, God. I mean, th- this, this ties into a whole bunch of stuff, um, including the the story that happened, I guess, maybe over the summer, but it just came out that um, this uh, congressional representative, I believe, Katie Porter, fired right. one of her employees for, quote unquote, giving her COVID. And like the, you know, the incubation period suggests that actually it couldn't have been this employee who gave her COVID because they basically got it at the exact same time. Um, and you know, but, oh God, there's so much, there's so much about this, like the rage directed at this woman and like the idea that, you know, you're going to, you lose your job for this. You lose your job because you did something that irresponsible. Like I'm firing you for cause. And the cause is that you gave me a respiratory (laughs) virus that everybody fucking gets. Um, Yes. That was fascinating to me. Okay. So um, this is, we hadn't planned on talking about this, but I actually wanted to derail into something that's related to this story specifically, because when I read it, I was like, I don't know, it really kind of spoke to me um, that the woman who was fired, whose name I uh, cannot remember, so I'm sorry about that, but she's um, a former uh, military, I think Marine um, or Navy. And she when she caught COVID, like she's um, like a vigilant gym goer. And so she initially thought that she was just feeling run down because she'd worked out like, like the soreness in her body that she was experiencing was very similar to like, well, I just did a hard workout. Like, of course I feel a little like, you know, beat up. And um, this was actually the first time that I caught COVID. I had that same experience. Like I had just um, on that day I had taught, Uh, I think four yoga classes back to back. And I was like, well, I feel like garbage, but of course I do because like, I always feel like garbage on the days when I teach this many classes. And so it didn't occur to me right away to go get tested to like, to think that I had caught a virus. I, you know, I thought I was just average, like tired. And the fact that we are at a point with this virus now where you can have it and basically, it's like a it's a complete crapshoot. Like, do I actually have this, or do I just feel kind of like ordinary, you know, day to day, a little bit tired, a little bit winter run down? Um, you know, that we are there in terms of how it actually materially impacts people, but the way we think about it is still crisis mode. Yeah, I mean, I think if, as I understand it, although I don't know with the variants or whatever, if you've been vaccinated, you're unlikely to have serious issues with it. I also can tell you from anecdotal experience that it's very possible that you can have a bunch of different winter illnesses of which COVID is the least sort of severe or troubling. Like I had a flu shot and flu was still a whole lot. My most recent flu was a whole lot worse than my most recent COVID, like fevers, feeling like complete crap. So 
what's interesting though is the um i guess for our purposes is really this like this sort of social etiquette of like not interacting right because that's a, a theme that comes up again and again on our podcast like the people who you know do you have to have a sign a consent form to hug your grandmother or whatever you know that sort of world mm-hmm. um so there's an article in the times in the new york times about uh the people who still take things very seriously on the covid front and um there was a part of it that I'm just obsessed with. And I, yes, I tweeted about it. Sorry to double dip in my own exciting material here, but um, where somebody um, who is also queer identified, whether, where this all lines up in the culture wars is its own separate, but related question. But anyway, this person says, um, okay. Okay. I'm fairly blunt said Mix Nerod, who is also a member of Mix Cherry, that's this person's partner's game group. So when somebody's like, oh, I'm inviting you to this event, my response is, you're crazy. That event is dangerous. Don't come crying to me when you get sick. So I'm like obsessed with this because it's just as, an, as a sort of response to being invited to something. Like, I just can't imagine it. Like what? And then do you get invited again ever? Are these friends? Are these... Isn't it ableist to use crazy? But also, um, <laughs> there are just so many questions. Like, if you don't want to go to something indoors with other people, then don't. <laughs> like, then if it's not your job to do it and it's a social thing that's optional, like, just don't. Like, why? The idea that you would respond to people in this way and the don't come crying to me when you get sick. It's like, it's like that person is unlikely to turn to you if they get sick. I think, you know, under any circumstance, except, except to cough on you possibly because you're so annoying, but um, yeah, it's just, what? (laughs) There's something about it. That's very interesting. And I guess I wonder also about the, what's strange about the sort of how this is supposed to align with queerness is I feel like one lesson from the AIDS epidemic, the HIV AIDS epidemic would really be that, you know, you're not a better or worse person based on your viral status, you know, that like, getting sick is something that happens to people who live in the world. And that's upsetting, but that's not like an indictment of their character, right? You know, we learned that we learned that lesson. We learned it pretty hard. And then it it really did become one of many, many things that were kind of an existing body of knowledge that just were jettisoned completely when the pandemic came along. And there's, I think, a very interesting book to be written, not by me. It's not my area, but about how we kind of erased history in favor of, I don't know, in in favor of this response, um, which of course, you know, was not just, wasn't just in the US, it was a global thing. You know, we got very into the idea that like, well, this time around, it's like, it's different. This virus is different. Um, The way we, you know, we have the capacity to control it somehow. And hence, you know, anybody who still gets it, even though we can control it, like parenthetically, obviously, we couldn't control it. But anybody who gets it has, you know, committed some kind of moral error. I mean, this is part and parcel of obviously, like we, we did at some point come to a kind of a vigorous consensus that yeah, you don't moralize the getting of disease and that trying to do so is in itself like a moral wrong. And then, you know, you're judging people like, 
you know, inappropriately and, do it, and that it's cruel and that it's cruel to do that. I mean, I think it still allows, it still allows for a category of reckless behavior. It allows for a category occasionally of like malicious behavior. Like if somebody knows they have a communicable disease and are, you know, going around communicating it, you know, in some cavalier manner or intentionally, you know, occasionally you get somebody like that, right? Like, fine. I don't think that it's, I don't think it prevents there being such a category, but I think the problem with something where, I mean, this comes up in all sorts of contexts, just with sort of cost benefit where like, should everybody, you know, even if it were able, even if this sort of COVID zero approach worked, at what point is it a meaningful life to be locked down forever? You know, like, I don't know. There's just something strange going on here. And the fact that the queer side of things, supposedly, I don't know that that many people would agree with this actually, would be this kind of forever. It, it, it just seems like this kind of signaling of a, a stance in the culture war, signaling of what you do and don't care about, that almost seems like part of some kind of branding, like sort of self-branding more than um, anything else. Like certain signs in a store or coffee shop or whatever go together, right? Mm, right. Like where there's, it'll have like, it, it, you know, Black Lives Matter, trans inclusive flag, uh, abolish the police, wear a mask, right? Right. It all kind of will go together. Yeah even if you now go into these places and there's nobody in a mask. Yeah. I like how um, a lot of the signage after a few years is maybe getting a little bit tattered and um, a little bit faded. And at one point, some point in the near future, like the last one of these sort of holdover signs is going to come loose from its tape and flutter to the floor (laughs) and it will be put in the garbage and it will not be replaced. And at that moment, an era will end. Um, but you know, the thing that's really interesting to me too, you know, to just like linger for one moment more on the question of what makes this queer and how queer or, you know, like radical or whatever has, has become synonymous with this very particular type of, um, very fearful, very hiding kind of lifestyle is like, I mean, that, that, I guess that's it. You know, how did we come to a place where the most radical thing you can do, um, you know, the the queerest thing you can do is spend the rest of your life sitting inside, um, inside your home, wearing like a military grade ventilator across the table from your spouse, you know, with whom you are. Maybe they cook something that smells terrible. (laughs) Probably. Like sometimes, sometimes I have been known to melt gorgonzola on pasta, but I'm only allowed to do this. It's not even allowed. It's just like, I know to only do this if I'm alone because like, I don't want to fumigate like the house. Yeah. So this, uh, this is also a little bit of a digression, but um, my mother's (laughs) pesto recipe, which um, comes from I believe the seventies or the eighties, because it's, uh, it's real weird. It involves, um, melted gorgonzola on pasta and then like a bunch of basil and garlic. That sounds really good to me. It's not bad. It doesn't sound like pesto though. It doesn't particularly sound like pesto. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely not that it's, it's pretty funky, honestly. It's Mm -hmm. a little weird. I need it. I mean, it sounds a little, yeah, it's not necessarily where I'd, 
go first. Um, I would put, I would unscrew one of the two vents of the respirator and put piece by piece the pasta in. And then if it's no good, I'd spit it out through the other side. Oh, that's, um, I like how your brain is working here. I think you should patent this. I think it's working really, really. I think it's definitely fine form. You don't have long COVID brain (laughs) fog. Um, What you really need is a pasta attachment on the mask. (laughs) Oh my God, a stand mixer you mean? Yeah, yeah, you know, and you could do. Okay, so could, it extrudes. Does it extrude the spaghetti? Could it also do like bucatini and like other? If there's a yeah, bucatini shortage, like there was absolutely. that time, you know, why not also do a, a sausage grinder while you're at it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can take it. I don't. This think has I can gotten take it. very, very weird and very unhygienic. So there was also, but then, so things got really heated on December twenty eighth, twenty twenty two. Remember twenty twenty two. I remember it like it was a few days ago um, when Emma Green <laughs> wrote the case for wearing masks forever, which got people a little worked up because they're like, oh, what? She that wants was... us to wear masks forever. Yeah, this headline was um, <laughs> it was a headline. Oh <laughs> but then it got but then the, the subhead is a ragtag coalition of public health activists believe that America's pandemic restrictions are too lax and they say they have the science to prove it. Now, if you read the article, or even, dare I say, the subhead, you might start to gather that this is not Emma Green of The New Yorker saying that you should wear a mask forever. So this, But because of this headline, the article managed to get everybody angry, the people angry at this lady from the lib media <laughs> wanting you to wear a mask forever, and then the people who, like, they'd kind of figure out what the article is about, um, angry that the article is somewhat dismissive of the people who want you to wear a mask forever. You know, what's interesting to me about this, and and I don't know, I recognize the kind of reactive dynamic from other stories of this type, I guess, where you've got a kind of a small, like, you know, as it says, ragtag coalition of people who are engaged in behavior that they're really into, but that just seems deeply and objectively weird and like, not right to basically everybody else, where they they have an article written about them that is more or less a straightforward accounting of what they are doing and saying, but mm-hmm. they get upset about that because it's like just neutrally describing this stuff comes off as being dismissive of it right well it's not embracing it the article is not saying and these people should be congratulated for their efforts yeah exactly and that's sort of the only way to get like you have to really put your thumb on the scale pretty hard to make this behavior seem like it's not extremely weird and so people get upset like I mean I I thought that this was I mean you could certainly sense that like there were there were moments in which Emma Green gave somebody she was talking to all the rope that they needed to string themselves up very effectively. By the mask. (laughs) Right, right. There's this moment where she asks somebody about um, capital. Hold on a second. Let me just, let me just look it up. Okay. So this is um, a man named Wallace. He's described as the group's saltiest spokesman, Rob Wallace, an independent scientist and researcher who anchors a weekly rundown called COVID This Week. Um, he said, 
the U.S. is on the far side of its cycle of accumulation and its high point in building empire. Its political class is now in the business of helping its financial supporters cash out, turning capital into money. Green notes that uh, there is this sort of Marxist slant to a lot of the discussion here, you know, she says the talk about empire building and capital accumulation made me wonder whether the people in the People's CDC, which is the ragtag group, are those people. When I asked Wallace this on Zoom, he gruffly denied that the members are all communists. And then he said, there's certainly an edge of red baiting on your part. And the fact that, um, you know, she chose to include this comment obviously doesn't, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't make him look good. It makes him look like the way he is, um, but it gives you a certain, a certain picture that, you know, were you attempting to do a flattering portrayal of this group or of this person, you might say, that's going to make him look bad. I'm going to hold that back. So I don't know. I think that's sort of where the, the rubber meets the road in terms of people being upset people, members of this group being upset that they didn't get like a more sympathetic airing in the New Yorker. Yeah. Sorry. My mind is like wandering to the question of the people who think that it's, who are like preserve life at all costs to do with COVID specifically. How do they feel about like obesity, smoking, things like other sort of like public health topics? Because I, my guess, my hunch would be that they're very much against blaming the individual and much more about systems and all of this. Right? Yes. Yeah, you know, I would I would imagine so. Um I mean, I think it's a mistake to expect there to be any real like organizing principle to this except the whims of the folks at the center of it. Yeah, I don't know. I I do um, but do you think so where where do we think the public pressure like the social pressure rather is regarding masking at this point? And let's make this a complete universal, since I'm sure there are no regional or milieu variations at all. I'm sure it's globally. Because I will say in Toronto, there's probably, my hunch is that there's both less sort of polarization around masking, like in general, this sort of political thing, like cause from, yeah, definitely. My, my point exactly. My point exactly. There's um. <laughs> There's a, a, a cat in our yard, yeah, and uh, we're we're having feelings about it. Um, this is going to go on for a second, so I'm going to just. Um... All right. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I like it. Are you I done? Think it's really funny. Are you done? Okay, I know it was very upsetting to see that. So we're we're trying to figure out what where in what direction the directional social pressure. Well, okay, I think that you know you want there to be a universal, but I think there's actually a very even. Split. No, I'm I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I don't think that there's any sort of universal. I think in Toronto, though, I do think that like just some that that from what I've heard from people and from what I've observed, I think there's still a bit of like I think there is some sort of like social pressure to wear a mask and social pressure not to wear a mask coexisting i think that still exists i think if you wear a mask around people who are sort of done with the whole thing it might attract some questions i think if you don't wear one um it might also i think i have seen these things coexist in like the same group setting where people are like pressuring each other in both directions i don't think it's necessarily like extremely fraught i think people do what they feel like um without you know any undue (laughs) demands either way but it does seem to be persisting like if you look like if you get on the subway there will be like still a lot of people in a mask it's not done 
Um, but I also think it's like, I think there's a new norm to some extent of wearing one when you're sick and that that's been a kind of like weirdly missing part of the discussion. Like sometimes you're out when you really shouldn't be because you're so sick, but you have to be to do things or you want to be whatever it is. And then maybe you're wearing a mask and it's not like, I don't think that that has a really um, strong culture wars component. Cause it's not like devotion to masking forever. It's more like there's so much snot and it's got to land somewhere. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. I mean, that's to me the, the sort of one instance in which, well, if it, it's that or if, you know, you're wearing a mask to protect yourself because you're, you know, immunocompromised. And in that case, it would be like, oh, you know, sure. are you are you somebody who would have been wearing a mask under any circumstances, you know, prior to COVID and now you're just doing it also post COVID? Kind of parenthetically, I think that one of the the unfortunate things about the way the pandemic was handled and the way it's being talked about is that like, People who are immunocompromised have always existed and respiratory viruses have always been dangerous to them and they've always had to take measures to protect themselves. Um, and there's nothing different about having to do that for COVID if you were going to have to do it anyway, but people act like it is. But the the phenomenon that is interesting to me is the people who are walking around wearing masks, but not properly. They just have them on like kind of hanging around their chins or hanging below their noses. It's like, has it been adopted as a fashion statement? What's the deal there? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's so many questions and I feel like all of these things could be answered probably like, like there probably is a reasonable explanation and like most or at least logical explanation a lot of the time. I mean, what always used to baffle me in this sort of like, heyday such as it was of the pandemic was when you would see somebody like in some on a crowded bus right and they're like their mask they're like holding it and it's like if you want to have it at all would now be the time you know it just yeah. always seemed very strange like if yeah. you're gonna do it wouldn't you do it now like or just not do it i don't know so it's interesting, like the divide in the social pressures though, like, so, okay, I, um, in, I guess it was like early October or late September, I went to a baseball game and I got on the train and how dare you Yeah, baseball probably has like, I don't know, bad, naughty white supremacist origins or something as well. So I would assume that. so everything about this was so wrong. <laughs> um, but so I, I got on the train to New York City. There were lots and lots of fellow um, Yankees fans on this train. Everyone was wearing their baseball gear. And so, you know, it was like fun to kind of walk through the train car and like nod at everybody else wearing their hats or jerseys or whatever. Nobody wearing a mask, right? Like not even not even a thought of wearing a mask. It was just clearly not a thing that people were doing. I posted a picture of myself um, on social media, you know, in my in my hat being like, going to the ball game and immediately was inundated with angry responses from, you know, like the kind of online COVIDian crowd who were very, very angry at me for not wearing a mask on public transportation. And, you know, I didn't bother to try to explain that nobody was wearing a mask on public transportation because, you know, the people who are taking public transportation at this point are not concerned about this. But that struck me as kind of the best example of the divide and not just like, not in terms of like 
politics or anything like that, but just where people are located who are kind of oriented one way or another. Like the people who don't care about this anymore are the ones who are outside doing stuff without masks on. And the people who do care about it are on the internet yelling at everybody else. Yeah. I mean, are they even outside in masks or are they just not going anywhere? That seems like another... I think they're not going anywhere. I mean, that's what the one thing that really stands out about, you know, so much of the advice, it's either explicit or subtextual. Um, You know, when you see like the the portraits of these people, um, like in the New York Times article about the last COVID holdouts, this is a lonely existence. Like they're just not really socializing. And one gets the sense that maybe they didn't socialize much before the pandemic either, or if they did, they did so reluctantly. So in a way, this has just been a pass to do the thing that they always kind of wanted to do in the first place. Oh, I think so. I mean, I think there are people who, I mean, I think there are, I would imagine that most people who don't want to go out and interact with one another, you know, with other people just want to kind of do their thing and don't want to be bothered. But there's some subset who like enjoy getting like validation for this, whether it's a choice or inclination or whatever. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's definitely some of it. And the other thing too, is how much the continued masking for at least some people seems to rely on the existence of someone somewhere who doesn't want you to wear one. Um, And I keep seeing this. It's like, you know, like, stop asking me why I'm wearing a mask. Like, stop giving me a hard time for wearing a mask. I I really wonder how many people are actually being given a difficult time for wearing a mask. I've never seen that happen. So I have seen that happen. I have seen that happen. But it also just seems like there's um, it's part and parcel of the sort of like decreased tolerance for the sort of friction of day to day life. Right. You know, people might talk to you when you're outside. And if you're too sensitive for any of it, then it's all too much. I don't know. So you saw somebody get shamed for wearing a mask? Not shamed, but I've seen people ask, like, why are you wearing a mask? Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. I have not I have not witnessed that. I've never wanted to ask somebody why they were wearing a mask, except for the people who are wearing one in like a decorative and decidedly non-functional way. And then I've wanted to ask, but I didn't want to be one of those people who asks why you're wearing a mask. So, well, yeah, I mean, I think all along, I think there's been a lot too much sort of of the like thought projection and like in the days when it, like I would be wearing a mask always if I was inside, I would sometimes be wearing it like between two neighboring stores. And I would always think, oh, God, some like commentator is going to see me but walking between the stores and like project some whole like, you know, she won't even go outside without a mask, which wasn't really true. But yeah, I don't know. I think there are a lot of there's been a lot of like imagining things. But I do think at this point, the cloth masks that apparently don't really do anything If I see somebody in a cloth mask, especially outside, I tend to assume this is like showing where you stand in the culture wars more than like a medical thing. But maybe I'm overly thought projecting myself. But like one of the things in the Times had that in the Times article, there was somebody who had this beautiful display of her like handcrafted fabric masks. And it's like, I was unclear on whether she was wearing those or whether she had like preserved them as a. It was like a, you know, a little time capsule artifact from the pandemic times. Um, right. But so like 
Okay, so there's there's one thing that I kind of kept coming back to, especially when I was reading the New Yorker article about the People's CDC, as they call themselves. And then I stumbled across the People's CDC on Twitter, um, and they had a tweet that says, use this checklist to make your New Year's gatherings safer and visit our full safer in-person gatherings guidelines at cusafer.org. I was very interested to see this. You know, it it is coming up on three full years of this stuff, um, you know, for this to be posited as something that people need to be doing for New Year's Eve 2022. So, okay, these are the checklist guidelines. Universal pre-event testing, reducing high-risk activities, checking for symptoms and exposure, universal masking, proof of vaccination, gathering outdoors, ventilation and air quality, small consistent groups, universal post-event testing, and contact tracing. Um, So here's what struck me about this is all of this stuff from the masking to the contact tracing to the social distancing to the keeping it small to the, um, you know, testing, it's all things that we have been trying, have tried, um, have in some cases Mm -hmm. mandated over the course of the past three years. So pretty large and expansive global data set suggesting, you know, whether or not these things are effective. And I think that like what we have learned in the past three years, you know, the the upshot of all of this has been that we miraculously managed to develop a vaccine that acts as a form of armor against the worst possible COVID outcomes. And yeah, yes, that's like a huge deal. But everything else has just been kind of a lesson and a really humbling one in the limits of our control over the natural world. And the fact that everybody is, not everybody, but that there's a group of people still wanting to do all of this stuff um, now, after all of this time, it just kind of strikes me as like, like a squandered opportunity to develop some humility and also to cultivate maybe even like a sense of gratitude and wonder about how tenuous the nature of our existence on the planet is, you know, that we are like, that we're just here by the grace of um, forces that are larger and more powerful than we are. The divine poodle. The divine poodle, um, you know, the Judeo-Christian God, the spasmodic whims of an indifferent universe, whatever you believe in, it's, it's all kind of awe-inspiring if you allow yourself to think about it. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, I don't know, because like when the days start getting shorter, um, my thoughts start getting darker and more esoteric. But like tomorrow there could be another virus uh, or an asteroid could hit the earth or um, there could be an earthquake that shears off the entire state of California and dumps it into the ocean and kills millions of people. Like any one of these things might happen. <laughs> any other, any other upbeat thoughts? <laughs> you know, I mean, but my, but my thought was like, we're here today. We get to be here today. Tomorrow, hopefully, probably we'll still be here, but maybe not. Like, and so, you know, coming back to the idea of um, living in this restricted way, uh, to quote that famous line, like your one wild and precious life, is this really what you want to be doing with it? Like you, you have a chance here and there, there are people obviously for whom the answer is you're crazy. That event is dangerous. Don't come crying to me when you get sick. (laughs) But, um, I think it's proper 
and necessary that these people are a minority. And also that, you know, I mean, I don't want to say they should be marginalized, but they they certainly should not be put in charge. Well, they shouldn't be given they I agree that they shouldn't be put in charge, certainly, but I would yes, and this and say that they shouldn't be given the moral high ground. And I think and I'm going to say this is like this goes different ways in politics, right? Like, I don't think that people who think abortion should be banned should be given the moral high ground either. You know what I mean? I think this is just this idea that once some group of people feels that they have claimed the moral high ground, and everybody else feels they have to kind of tiptoe around them, that's where you get problems. You know what I mean? Where it's like, well, we have to be kind to these because they really are the side of good. And, you know, we're bad, but they're good. So we have to like, you know, even if we choose to be a little bad, does that make sense? Like, I think I've seen this a lot online, certainly with like, just overall sort of hypersensitivity, where if somebody identifies as kind of a hypersensitive, tender, whatever person, and everybody kind of like, agrees that with them, and their self definition, like you don't have to agree with somebody's self definition in that regard, you don't have to say that just because somebody's claiming a moral high ground, they have it. And I think, at this point in the, you know, era of COVID existing in this world, if you think that it's immoral for people to ever interact with one another in person, you do not have the moral high ground. You know, it's mm-hmm. bare minimum complicated, but it's certainly not a case of a clear moral high ground. And I think there's no, I think there's a danger in kind of treating people like this as like the the really sensitive when like, no, there, there, there are costs and benefits and like it's actually harmful what they're advocating. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that at least the authoritarian nature of it needs to be acknowledged. Um, and mm-hmm. I think about, this was such a genre of sentiment and you saw it, you know, in all kinds of like essays and posts and so on. It was, I just care so much about other people, which is why I'm not spending time with other people ever again <laughs> in my life. And um, I think I've, I've mentioned this before because I can just find it like a fascinating specimen of, of thing. Um, but there was a time when, people would say this and it's a sort of a self-evidently absurd declaration, but everyone would nod along be like, yes, you are, you do, you care so much. Mm -hmm. Like I wish other people cared as much as you did. And to a certain extent, you know, it's participating in this, you know, I mean, it's delusion too strong a word. Um, You know, whatever it is, it's not sustainable. Uh, It's not something that you can, actually have be the norm that that is foundational to the continued existence of your society oh i don't know i think i think we should uh what should we do i think we should design really really big masks out of like brick and um what is it like slate or whatever is on a roof (laughs) and and you can only go out wearing one. So you just have to have a house around you. You sort of walk around, waddling around in your house. <laughs> I liked uh, the the image that I immediately got as you started talking about bricks was um, <laughs> walling someone up, like in the uh, Cask of Amontillado, the Edgar Allan Poe story. Um, the guy lures a loathed person to his home and um, brings him down into the wine cellar and then bricks him up behind the wall and buries him alive. And uh, that works too. I mean, (laughs) like on the upside, you won't get COVID back in there. 
Yeah, that's true. It's tough to tough to give yourself COVID if you if if you're just behind a brick wall and not interacting at all. Yeah. 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 I've often wondered if the guy who was walled up um just to, you know, additional dark thoughts. <laughs> like, do you think he drank the wine before he died? Probably. Probably. Yeah. I would assume so. I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um has this has this been the feminine chaos case for masking forever? Please assume that that's where we're going with this. We we want you, our listeners, to wear full hazmat suits, not just in public but in private, right? The mask we want you to wear, actually, specifically, is the one in our logo, the screaming unicorn. It won't stop you from getting COVID, but it will keep everybody else at a distance. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I think that's, that's the only way to do it. Um, Has this been, has it been feminine chaos? It's been, it's been feminine chaos. And uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing at femchaospod.substack.com for $5 a month. You will gain access to two exclusive premium episodes per month and also our entire back catalog of episodes and also occasional open threads where you can talk to fellow chaos lovers. And uh, you know what, since we're doing housekeeping. I'm going to do a little personal housekeeping. My book, you must remember this, my next novel will be out on January 10th. Yay! If you pre-order it and send me a screenshot of your receipt and your address, I will send you a signed book plate to put in your book when it gets there. So that's my little self-promotional moment of indulgence. Thank you. Very cool. Very cool. And yeah, uh, wishing a happy new year to our listeners. I guess that's it. Bye. (laughs) Bye.